It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Good afternoon, everybody. I mean, we are we're in December, uh, and you'd think it was a, a, a time where, where politics was going to slow down a little bit. Election Day was a month ago, but New Jersey is the state that never sleeps. New, Jer- New York's got nothing on Jersey, and and this was again a drama-filled week in Trenton. Uh, Republicans in the state assembly called the speaker's bluff. They refused to show their proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. There were threats that legislators would be denied entrance into the assembly chambers, uh, but that was never implemented. The New Jersey State Police stood down. They allowed Republicans to walk past them uh, without any incident at all. And that that came even after the attorney general told legislative leaders uh, or at least inferred to them that that the state police would follow the policy of the state house commission. Uh, this this issue is not over. Uh, the assembly is going to sidestep these vaccination card checks next week. They've they've instead ordered remote sessions. So what that means is that every legislator is going to be on the phone, and for every bill, they're going to call a roll. Out it, it it takes a very long time. It's not the same as when legislators are are in the room together debating. Uh, Republicans went to court. Uh, a judge won't hear those arguments till December thirteenth. But eventually, everyone's going to have to figure this out. And today, I'll be joined by Brian Bergen. He's a Republican assemblyman from Morris County, and he was one of the leaders that was against being forced to show his proof of vaccination. Uh, Later on, don't miss a talk with the two women who ran Governor Phil Murphy's re-election campaign, Molly Bonato and Jackie Burns. And and now now this is a big deal. Coming up at 4.30, I will speak with Nicholas Scatari. He is the incoming president of the New Jersey State Senate. That means that in about a month, he'll become the second most powerful person in state government. And this is his first interview since Democrats in the Senate designated him as their new, their new leader. Uh, you, you are not going to want to miss what he has to say. And I get a lot of, of feedback from listeners that, that they like to hear stories about New Jersey's legendary political history. And, and since I like telling these stories, um, I'm always happy to oblige. So here's a story about a, a Patterson man who had unlimited potential when he was elected to the state Senate. Now, this was a long time ago. Uh, this was 1927. Uh, he was about 30 years old. His name was Roy Yates. And, and almost immediately, people started talking about Roy Yates as a candidate for governor. Uh, but Senator Yates, who was married with three young daughters, he had a secret. And that secret came out on a, on a hot summer night in August 1931. Yates was a banker, uh, even though he was in his 30s, and, and despite the Great Depression, he'd already begun to accumulate some wealth. And he used some of that money to rent uh, what was described back then as a swanky apartment on the Upper West Side. Uh, he used to spend a lot of his evenings there. And living in the apartment was a woman who was not his wife. Her name was Ruth Cranmer. And one night, while Yates and 
Cranmer were on their, their fourth bottle of gin. Remember, this was prohibition, so so you had to drink at home or you had to find someplace else to go. But but on their fourth bottle, according to, to witnesses, uh, there were the two got into a huge argument over the size of her allowance. Miss Cranmer said that Yates didn't understand how expensive Manhattan living was. And this fight got heated, and and Miss Cranmer, well, she took out a gun and she shot Senator Yates in the stomach. So Yates was in critical condition for about two weeks. And as you might imagine, even back then in the 1920s, this story went national. I and mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like today with Twitter and Facebook. But but even so, once a day when people got their news from the newspapers, uh, they couldn't get enough of the, the shooting of Senator Roy Yates. It was, it was front page in the Bergen record for weeks. But I guess that was understandable. I mean, there was, there was no Stuart Leonard's to to divert their coverage to at the time. During the investigation of the shooting, it came out that, now this is a very Jersey story, uh, the taxpayers were subsidizing Cranmer's New York living. Senator Yates had been chairing what was called the Senate's Pension Survey Committee. He had hired Ms. Cranmer as a research assistant. Uh, he had paid her $566 for June and July of, of that year. In, in, in today's dollars, that's about five grand a month. Uh, this is David Wildstein. You're listening to a story about a senator who got shot by his mistress on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And so after the shooting, the Senate Judiciary Committee launched an investigation. Uh, some of Yates's colleagues introduced a move to impeach him uh, to avoid impeachment as 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 people often do yates resigned from the senate he lost his job as president of the bank he uh he had run in patterson he eventually moved to manhattan uh this time with his wife uh, and he worked in banking and advertising he became fairly successful again but his political career was over at 35 nobody was talking about roy yates for for governor anymore uh but wait, there's there's still a little bit more. Uh, Yates had obtained a railroad pass for Miss Cranmer, so she could travel between New Jersey and New York for free. This was an old perk. Uh, the Yates investigation led to a release of a report that showed that over a thousand politically connected New Jerseyans had been given these free railroad passes. Uh, this became an issue in the gubernatorial campaign that year, and both of the candidates agreed to just just ban the practice. So, so this this one guy, and it happens quite often. This one guy led to the end of a of a great perk for for politicians all over New Jersey. Gates wouldn't testify against Cranmer, uh, so so the charges got dropped, and within a year. Miss Cranmer had found another Upper West Side apartment. This one was rented by an English professor at Columbia University. But when the professor's wife found out about the the arrangement, uh, Miss Cranmer was evicted. Uh, she claimed she had agreed to pay uh, get get paid for her education so that she could pursue a career. So she sued the professor for abandonment. 
Uh, I'm not sure what happened after that. I don't think she shot anybody else. But but you know, once again, this was this was a little bit of drama this time on the, on the New York side of the river. Uh, and 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 I I just want to finish up the story by saying that Yates got back in the news a couple of years later. There was a a Passaic County judge. Uh, named William Harley, he he had testified that he was forced to make a $25,000 contribution to Passaic County Republicans in order to get a, a judicial appointment. I mean, you can't even imagine that, right? I mean, a, a lawyer lawyer making campaign contributions to get a judgeship. It's, it's hard to believe, right? Uh, but Harley uh, said that the state controller who, who was investigating Yates he got half the money. That was his. That was his vig on the deal. Um, he said Gates later tried to influence his decisions on the bench, and that threats from political bosses became so common that he carried a gun into his courtroom for his personal protection. Uh, so you've, you've got to love Jersey politics. You just do. It's just. It's just no place that is ever ever like it. Uh, coming up next, I'm going to speak with Assemblyman Brian Bergen about a Republican rebellion in Trenton this week. And at 4.30, don't miss the first in-depth interview with the incoming president of the New Jersey Senate, Nicholas Scatari. And then later on, I'll be joined by Molly Bonato and Jackie Burns. They ran Governor Mil- Phil Murphy's re-election campaign this year. So please don't go anywhere. You're not going to want to miss any of this. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. Brian Bergen is a, a Republican assemblyman from Morris County. He's also a West Point graduate who flew Army helicopters in Iraq. Assemblyman, welcome back to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. Hey, David. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. You had an interesting week, Assemblyman. Tell me what happened. Uh, it was uh, it was quite the day. I'm not going to lie. So, it, the, well, the, the Democrats attempted to put in a policy in the state house that would preclude people from entering if they didn't show a vaccine card or proof of a negative COVID test within seven days. And uh, we disagreed fundamentally with that type of policy, and we pushed back. And ultimately, uh, the speaker caved, and we were allowed to conduct, although a brief session, a session nonetheless. How many votes? You didn't have that many votes. You had a, a huge calendar, right? And there weren't that many vote bills passed? Yeah, there were supposed to be 67 bills taken up that day, but I believe we only did six. And what were, what were they saying to you? As, you, as you, you came into the building, you had a swarm of press around you. Everybody was watching to see whether Brian Bergen would, would get in the building. Uh, tell, me, tell me what happened. You walked into the building. To walk me through uh, what happened from there. So I came up through the normal legislator, legislator parking on the second floor, uh, came in that door, and there were two state troopers inside the vestibule that, that, who have never been there, by the way. There's never been state troopers posted there. Usually just a security and guard, right? Just a security guard, yeah. But they, I identified myself as Assemblyman Brian Berg, and they asked me to swipe my badge. I did, the door, and they opened the door, and I walked in. They didn't stop me. They didn't ask me for anything. Um, not, not at that point, anyway. And then when I got to the caucus later, um, some state troopers were were sent to the caucus by the speaker, allegedly, to inform me that uh, 
the policy was was going to be different when we tried to get into the chamber later on, and that they were instructed and planned on uh, preventing us from entering the chamber. And I'm I'm speaking with Assemblyman Brian Bergen of, of New Jersey. So so when you when you walk in there, one of the things that I I heard was going on as as uh, as Democratic legislators were in their caucus room uh, trying to figure out what was happening. Also, they were going to clear the floor. They were going to do, do I have that right? And they were going to do a security sweep. Yeah, this is the, probably the craziest part of a, just a crazy day. I mean, it it was amazing and. Um, just hard to swallow as an American that there were oh, was a police presence preventing us from coming onto the floor to begin with. But once we got onto the floor um, and we were sitting in our seats and we were waiting for the session to begin, the speaker allegedly called for a second security sweep and asked the state troopers to clear us out of the chamber and conduct a security sweep. And in an attempt to get us back out so that they could prevent us from coming back in. I, I, man, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a prosecutor. But I got to think that there's something really seriously wrong for essentially faking a security threat to have a sweep done to prevent lawmakers from being in their seats. I mean, we just had Bridgegate happen not too long ago. People I, re- I recall that, Assemblyman. I recall that. Right. So we had uh, people went to jail over a couple of lanes of traffic. And here you have the speaker of the house using the police to clear the chamber under false pretenses. That's scary. And and just assembling in the constitution says, and and I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a constitutional scholar, but it says that you can't, you can't stop a legislator from going to Trenton to vote. And, and you know, well, I say I'm not a constitutional scholar. I, you know, you, you know I, f- I follow political history pretty closely. Uh, my recollection of, of, from what I heard that was behind that, that constitutional provision is, is way back in the, in the, in the, the late 1800s when, when people used the railroad to get along, uh, to get around. What would happen is, the railroad industry, when, when they were facing a new tax on a railroad, sometimes sometimes paid the county sheriff to keep legislators away. Is, is that, I mean, is, do, you, do you think that that constitutional provision is going to get upheld? Yeah, of course it will get upheld. I mean, if it doesn't, that's scary because the, the governor could direct the police to detain me, as an example, if he didn't like the way I was going to vote on something or our caucus. It, 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 the provision makes a lot of sense. It just says you can't arrest us on our way down to doing our duty while we're doing the duty or on our way back with two exceptions, a high misdemeanor and treason. And look, we told them that when we got to the door and they were not going to arrest us. But what the speaker and the Democrats will try and tell you is that they weren't going to prevent us from fulfilling our duty because they gave us a quote unquote remote option. I'll tell you, it's not the same. When I I get up, as you know, and I debate on the floor frequently and my ability to effectively lobby for my constituents through debate on the floor is impacted if they make me remote. I, I react differently based on how the person I'm debating reacts. I change the way I'm doing things. I ask additional questions if I can see that there's opportunity there. So for them to disenfranchise me for that is disenfranchising my voters. It's not the same, and it's not a comparison they can make. Now, Assemblyman Brian Bergen, 
we you know Speaker Coughlin. I you know I know Speaker Coughlin also. He he's a decent man. You know he's 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 not an evil person. What what led to to this policy? I have no idea what led to the policy. I mean, I, I really don't, and I'm not, and I, I agree with you that the speaker is a is a good man from what I know him. But what he what he did the other day was fundamentally un-American. Using police to prevent us from getting to our to the chamber was awful, and this policy will will be a slippery slope to mandates across the state, and that's why. The Republicans and I took such a hard stance here it's because it's not about this particular day and getting to the floor. That's the least of the larger issue. The larger issue here is that if we acquiesce to this policy, we are fundamentally saying that it's okay now to do it other places. It's okay to do it in restaurants and bars and movie theaters and uh, your gym. And so we are giving our blessing by complying with that policy. And that's why we didn't do it. So what happens next, Assemblyman? Is there a compromise or is this going to be just a winner-take-all kind of fight? I don't know. I don't know, David, but what I will tell you is that the day of, there was no attempt for compromise. There were, there were zero conversations between the Speaker and the Republican Party for the entire day. Can you imagine that? Not one, not one time was there any leadership discussion, talking things out, trying to come to a compromise? Because the Democrats are so used to just ramming things down our throats that that is their playbook. They say we do. And this time we we said enough is enough. So I watched Jack Chitterelli and Diane Allen campaign. I mean, and, and I will admit I. I was sometimes thinking, you know, what the heck are they doing? Republicans are supposed to move to the center for a general election in New Jersey. But but what I now know is is this. Republicans were able to change the turnout model in the 2021 election. They they energize voters who might not normally vote, who who simply don't agree with Phil Murphy. Is is that going to be the plan going forward? Are you going to keep energizing that that group of Republicans for 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 the twenty twenty two midterm elections? Well, here's what I'll say. I'll say moving your values anywhere to try and change the outcome of an election is, is being dishonest to yourself and the people. We need to, as a Republican Party, define our define our value set and our beliefs and stick to them. And not move around because it's going to work here, work there. This area is purple. This area is blue. No. You, your values are your values. You stick to them and you run hard and you, and you do a winning campaign and you can win. And that's what we're, showing, what we're demonstrating now is you don't have to fake it to make it here. Just be yourself and, and the, the people will come. And, and I'm speaking with Brian Bergen. He's a, a Republican assemblyman from New Jersey. And Republicans picked up six seats in the state assembly this year. So it's going to be a bigger minority in 2022, probably the biggest since, since 2003. It seems to me, assemblyman, that what's in store is a, is a more partisan, more conservative, more vocal minority than it's been. Yeah, I, I would hope so. We, 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 I've always said since I got there, which isn't that long ago, that we need to utilize our leverage at every possible opportunity. And that being in a minority does not mean that you can have to be ineffective and does not mean that you can't accomplish things. 
but you got to utilize your leverage wherever it presents itself. With the more members we have, the more leverage we have, because the fewer Democrats we need to convince that something is bad. And they need a certain number of people to pass things, obviously. And now only seven of them have to uh, have to be fractured away on any one thing for them not to get what they want. I am I am I am looking at a book that I keep on my desk. It's called The Red and the Blue: The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. It was written by the smartest person I know in American politics, Steve Kornacki. Uh, Assemblyman Brian Bergen, is is this in what we're seeing in New Jersey now? Is is this the Newt Gingrich 1994 playbook? Is this just a uh, do do Republicans feel that the path? from minority to majority is through a more aggressive stance, calling out Democrats on issue after issue? Well, I can't speak for everybody, but I could tell you that's what I think it is. And I said this, uh, as you probably recall, before the election happened, that we, if, as a Republican Party, if we decide we want to win, we can win. And I used it, and I referenced Newt Gingrich and John Boehner, and what they did in the 90s was just the, the first step of it all was to Put it down on paper and say, we are going to win. Now, let's make a plan to get there. The Republicans have seen now a, a few victories in a row, and I hope that all of us can, can get behind the fact that there's some momentum here, there's opportunity here, and we do not have to be the silent minority that gets what the Democrats give us. We can take what we want. There are multiple ways to get it done, and we need to fight hard for our constituents, and, and we're just showing right now that, that we're headed down that path, absolutely. In New Jersey Assemblyman Brian Bergen, a Republican from Morris County, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for, for coming on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour again. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I will be right back, everybody, with the new president of the New Jersey State Senate, Nicholas Scutari, and you are not going to want to miss anything that he has to say. This is David Wildstein, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. Nicholas Scutari is the, the longtime chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He was reelected to a sixth term in the New Jersey Senate last month. And in January, he is slated to become the Senate president. That is the second most powerful person in state government. Senator, how are you? I'm great. How are you, David? I'm doing well, Senator. And you had an unexpected life-altering experience last month. Steve Sweeney lost re-election. Nobody saw this coming. Now you're going to be the Senate president. Has this new reality set in for you yet? Uh, Still working on it. But as you said, it was a really bad night on Tuesday. Uh, I've personally been able to turn it into a positive. But uh, Steve Sweeney was a longtime Senate president, excellent legislator, and, and no one saw that coming. And I feel terrible about that, but we're we're moving forward. And and I I think back as to your own political history. You were you were you know I, I've been watching your 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 career for for a long time. You you came to the Senate in two thousand three through through unexpected circumstances. A Democratic senator dropped out late. I mean, is this this is just becoming quite a ride for Nick Scatari, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it seems as though history repeats itself sometimes and not quite the exact same circumstances. But I, I've learned in politics and in life, you know, I, you don't you can't really plan for things. 
but you can position yourself. You can work hard in the titles that you have. Be happy where you're at. Be loyal to your friends. Uh, and make sure your word is good. Try to do a good job, and things will come to you. And this is the first time, Senator, that that the upper house is going to have a new president in 12 years. And, and it took Democrats a relatively short amount of time, just a couple of days to decide that you were the guy they wanted. How did you get that done? Uh, well, that's a, that's a long story for a longer show, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I hope that it's a reflection on my career, my relationships with the other senators, um, you know, providing uh, a good work product for what you've done in the legislature during the time you've been there and keeping your word, quite frankly, and making sure that people can trust you uh, with the stewardship of a very important job, which is the presidency of the New Jersey State Senate. And I'm speaking with uh, New Jersey Senator Nicholas Katari. Senator, as I said, I've, I've watching your career for a long time now, back to when you were a, a Union County freeholder. It, it, you don't come across, at least to me, as a controversial person by nature. And and you seem to have led uh, by building a consensus. Is that how you're going to run the Senate? Uh, that's certainly the way I hope to approach it. I guess people ask me how I'm going to do it. I think that the only idea how that's going to happen is the history of the way I've conducted myself in the legislature, the way I've run the Senate Judiciary Committee. I try to be bipartisan and professional in nature. I think that that the Senate is known for that. Uh, I'd like to continue that decorum moving forward, uh, but never abandoning our principles about what we'd like to accomplish. But we certainly, I think that trend, uh, I've always said this, is a lot more functional than Washington. I think that there's a lot more that brings us together than separates us. And there's room for common ground. And when there's not, we'll take strong positions and move forward. And I hear from Republican, Republican senators that have served with you, you know, whether they've served with you for four years or whether they've served for you for served with you for a dozen years, uh, they they find you fair. They say you're no pushover, but they they find you a, a, to be a decent guy to deal with. Is is that bipartisanship an important part of this job? Uh, I think that it is. I'm, I'm honored to have those remarks associated with my name and my career. Uh, None of them on the record, by the way, Senator. What's that? None of them on the record, by the way, Senator. They will privately tell me you're a good guy. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't mean we can't work together publicly and privately to get the best things done for New Jersey. And I think that's what people expect. They want us to get things done that accurate, accurately reflect what they would like to have done. And that, that, that I hope, is going to be the tenor of, of the cornerstone of a new beginning in the Senate. And something that I, I hear from many Democratic senators uh, uh, since Election Day is that, and these are members of your caucus, that that they want New Jersey to be governed more from the center, not not necessarily from the left, as as some think it, it has been for the last few years. Do you, do you agree with that? Is that fair? Well, I, I wouldn't kind of put it in exact that terminology, but I do think that there are certain basic needs that we need to provide for for the, the residents of New Jersey and the taxpayers in New Jersey. And I think that that that, that is, a, I guess you might call those center type things, but affordability. I think the affordability of the state to, to live in this state and provide excellent government services at the same time are two of the cornerstones of having a very good government, right? I mean, people want to be able to afford here. They want to be able to raise their family here, and they want government to serve them and function well. So if that's the center, I think that's a good place to start. That doesn't mean we can't do things that we believe are right and not necessarily believe are always the most popular. I mean, I did that with the legalization of marijuana when I started that process. I don't think it was the most popular idea, but I always felt it was right, and then the world caught up to it. 
And I'm speaking with the next president of the New Jersey Senate, Nicholas Scutari. Senator, how how are you going to balance the preferences of your caucus with requests that are going to come from Phil Murphy, who is, is term limited and may never see his name on a ballot again? Well, where we can have common ground, we'll certainly work together with the administration. And where we don't believe that there's uh, something that we can agree to, we'll certainly voice that concern. The Senate's always had a very strong role to play under Senator Sweeney and even before that with Senator Cody. Uh, and I don't imagine that's going to change uh, a hopeful under my hopeful leadership. And I want to get ahead of myself for January 11th. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll be a strong voice and a strong partnership when it comes to uh, the economy of the state, when it comes to appointments in the state, when it comes to issues of the day. Um, and I think there is common ground with the administration, as well as there are uh, in, in lots of different geographic areas and, and democratic areas of the state. And you have, a, you have a decent relationship with Governor Murphy. It has not been as contentious as, as some other, other Democrats, uh, Democratic legislative leaders have seen over the last couple of years. I think that's fair to say. I, uh, I think he's a, a great guy, and he's done an, uh, an outstanding job with regard to pandemic response. Not an easy job. There's no playbook on what to do there. Not everything I would have done, um, but uh, you know, we, we've come. We're coming out of it. The economy's is strengthening, and I, we don't want to go backwards. We want to move forwards, but we also want to make sure we play a role because we have constituencies to report to ourselves. We're on the ground. Uh, the legislative leaders. The legislators themselves are on the ground with their constituents. They're the front line workers, and they've been that during this last pandemic and probably going forward. What would would you say your your biggest difference with the governor on on pandemic response was? You know, I I don't know if I can pin down any one particular area because I want to play Monday morning quarterback. I mean, I'm never a fan of immunity uh, for anything, and I know that there was a an argument to, to give immunities for people coming from out of state to help with the pandemic. Maybe I, that, that was an area that we had some long talks about. But, uh, you know, there, I, the one thing I think people want, and, and I'll say this last when we started this pandemic response and today, is they want uniformity and they want fundamental fairness, right? I mean, that's the way people feel. Uh, you know, in one in one part, of the, you can go in without a mask. Some place you can go with a mask. In one place, they have a, a vaccine mandate or a testing mandate. In some place, they don't, and they don't see the uniformity. And and it's difficult. I mean, we've got nine million people here. We've got lots of different opinions, but governing in a uniform fashion uh, is important to people, I believe, and that makes them feel like they're treated treated fairly and not any different than anyone else. And I think that that's something that we got to continue to strive for. It's not perfect, but we're trying to get there. And I'm talking to Nick Scatari, who will be the president of the New Jersey Senate in January. Senator, I want to ask about some some tough issues that the state's facing. Uh, Speaker Craig Coughlin announced this week that he'd back Governor Murphy's gun safety package. Uh, where where will you be on that package of bills? Well, I can't say it in terms of the whole package. I've studied them all, but I will tell you as a general response that New Jersey's already got some of the strongest gun laws in the country. And we do a very good job with gun safety. There, there are certain things we're never going to be able to get control of if we don't stop manufacturing guns in this country. And I think what we need to talk about is the illegal guns, the illegal gun trafficking. I think the responsible gun owners in the state that are guaranteed that right through the Constitution are not going to give away those rights easily. Um, sure, we can do certain restrictions, responsible ones. I sponsored some measures that way, and I think there's some that the governor's proposed that, I, that we're going to be supportive of. But I don't think the whole package is going to fly in the Senate. And I can tell you because responsible gun owners aren't, aren't necessarily the ones that are 
uh, committing these horrific crimes. Uh, and so we don't want to overburden them, although I believe they should have strong restrictions and the ability to purchase weapons and, and have weapons. Um, but on the other hand, we've got to get to the root of the problem, which is the illegal gun trafficking and the illegality. And, and that gets to mental health, quite frankly. A lot of this stuff stems in mental health. And the speaker and I have already chatted about mental health in New Jersey being one of the paramount issues of the day and working together uh, uh, in that in the next year. So what about the Reproductive Freedom Act? I mean, to me, it doesn't look like it's going to be stirring lame duck. So I, I guess this, this is all going to fall on, on you and, and probably early in your, your tenure as the Senate president. Uh, do you have the votes to pass this bill? I'm not certain of that. I'm not running the caucus yet. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure where the leadership is going to be on that in the next 38 days. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that, uh, if it, if it comes up in, in, after January 11. If it doesn't, then I'll, I'll, I'll vote accordingly and, and, and according to my beliefs. I mean, I, I am not in any way embarrassed or ashamed to say that I'm completely uh, pro-choice. That's not to say that I endorse every aspect of that bill yet, because I haven't studied it in detail. I will if we believe we're going to move it or a version of it that may be scaled down. But I think that's still something that's got to be decided. Uh, and uh, I, I think people, and particularly women, should have a right to choose. On the other hand, uh, how how much of a right do they have? Uh, I think is part of what people are are, are discussing. And, Senator, what about codifying Roe v. Wade? Do you think, at the very least, the legislature will will get that part of it done, and then and then maybe maybe move on to to other aspects of that bill down the road? Well, I think that you probably got one shot at this. Probably. So I think we better get it right. Uh, I think New Jersey is a strong pro-choice state. I mean, not with everyone, for sure. I certainly am. Um, but, uh, you know, just the simple codification of Roe v. Wade, is, it, it's not as easy as it sounds. There's different case law in New Jersey that's born out of that. Uh, and, um, you know, there may be other things that we can do to assist in, in, in women's health. But on the other hand, you don't want to go so far afield that you uh, you don't recognize other people's opinions on this strongly divided issue. I can't believe we're still talking about it after all these years, quite frankly, but it sounds as though we're going to be dealing with it soon. And, um, you know, whether it's done before January 11th or uh, we deal with it after a new administration's in there, uh, we'll act accordingly. And I'm speaking with Nick Scutari. He is going to be the Senate president in uh, in January. And, and uh, you you have been uh, you're, you're succeeding the longest serving Senate president in New Jersey history. But I I think you might be the longest serving judiciary chair in New Jersey history. And and Governor Murphy's going to make uh, three or, or four nominations to the New Jersey Supreme Court during the second term. And I guess that depends on. Uh, Four, if, you know, three, if, if he can get his current nominee, Rachel Weiner, after confirmed before the end of the session. But what are you going to tell the governor as he builds his short list of Supreme Court nominees? Well, I, I told him this and I'll tell him that I'll continue to tell him that we, we'd like to see people on the court that have experience uh, in society, uh, not just the highest thinking individuals and that's very very important and also to have it reflect what new jersey looks like that's important as well but also reflect what lawyers do for people on a regular basis um because they're the ones that are 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 carrying out the edicts of the supreme court and so having at least a voice on the court that has an idea of what a lawyer does day to day to service their clients the main street lawyers i think that's an under uh, overlooked area that I think needs to be represented because as these justices retire, 
there will be no longer a, uh, a representation of what the ordinary Main Street lawyer does every day. The people that try to get people, uh, you know, represent them in lower level criminal matters, the people that do their house closings, the people that do their their injuries when they're hurt at work or they're hurt in a car accident or they're hurt on a job site. Uh, those types of lawyers, not saying that's what we're going to put on, but somebody that has some level of experience of what people deal with, because we want to make sure that common folk, regular folk, and I'm going to use your common, uh, have a seat at that table. And I guess I think it's February 15th, uh, uh, Justice uh, Fernandez Vina reaches the mandatory retirement age of, of 70. So, and he is, he is a Republican. Do do you support maintaining a partisan balance on the court? I do. I do. I, I do. And I think there's excellent uh, jurists, potential jurists in New Jersey on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican. Uh, I think, you know, although New Jersey is uh, primarily a Democratic state, I will say that it's it's not all one way. Uh, there's plenty of Republicans and there's plenty of outstanding uh uh, potential jurists on both sides of the aisle. And I think that balance has served us well. New Jersey's got an excellent reputation. Its judiciary is held out as an excellent uh, model across states. You know, New Jersey is one of the few states that we don't elect our judges. The judges go through the uh, nomination and confirmation process. And I think that's the way to do it. Not that many other states do. And I think that's a reflection of how well our judiciary on the whole comports itself and and renders common sense rulings. And I want to try, try Senator, get one one last question in before we run out of time, which is, you, you, as you indicated before, you spent about 20 years building support for the legalization of marijuana in New Jersey. I think you were you were the very first to really, uh, you know, to aggressively come at that issue. Now you're going to be in charge of the Senate. What comes next? Uh, well, you know, I can't speak to what exactly comes next other than, you know, I have a constituency that's more concentrated than than nine million folks in New Jersey. But I have a constituency of 24 members of the Senate Democratic Caucus and 16 members of the Republican Caucus. And formulating the direction we go is going to be a collaborative effort, not just what Nick Scutari says, but what the members say, because they're the ones that report to their uh, constituents directly and, and, and listening to them. And formulating the, the direction in which New Jersey goes, I think, is a very important part of the process. So I don't want to get too far ahead about the things we need to do. I think affordability, people's rights in this country, in this state, functionality of government, you know, protecting people from insurance companies and big business, I've always been an advocate for. Those types of overarching issues, I think, are of paramount importance. But, you know, specifics are still to be rolled out. Well, Sen- Senator Nick Scutari, I mean, thank you so much for coming on, and, and I wish you the very best of luck as you, you take on this, this incredibly challenging uh, new opportunity in your life. Thank you, David. You're always an outstanding interviewer. I wish you the best, and uh, we're looking forward and excited to, to move forward. Thank you, Senator. And I will be right back with Molly Bonato and Jackie Burns, who ran Governor Murphy's reelection campaign. You, you're going to want to stick around and hear what they have to say. This is David Wildstein, and you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. Welcome back, everybody. Molly Bonato and Jackie Burns ran Phil Murphy's re-election campaign for governor this year, and, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have them both on to to, to talk about, about how more women running uh, campaigns in New Jersey. Molly, Jackie, welcome to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. Hi, David. 
Hi, David. Hey, how are you? And, and uh, uh, this might be the shortest conversation the three of us have ever had because we're on the radio. So, so I, I remind you both, we are not, you know, we are on the record this time. Fair so, enough. We'll, so, we'll behave. So you you two made some history this year. Phil Murphy was the first Democratic governor to win re-election in 44 years. Uh, uh, Molly and Jackie also made some other history. You the first woman to ever run a winning gubernatorial race in New Jersey. Uh, Jackie, you and I are both history buffs. Do you know, you know who the first woman to run a successful campaign statewide in New Jersey was? Oh, you're going to stump me up, David, at the opening. I know it's not. It, I would I would say Maggie Moran, but am I am I wrong on that? You you are you are that one that one came a little bit short. Uh, Molly, do you know the answer? Yeah, it's actually Bill Bradley's campaign manager, oh, uh, Susan wow. Thomas. Wow. Okay. Nineteen seventy eight. That was nineteen seventy eight. That that's right. Uh, so, so the two of you started working together three years ago. Uh, Molly managed Mikey Sherrill's campaign for Congress. Uh, Jackie was the communications director. Jackie, tell me about that campaign. Uh, yeah, so I, in um, 2016, I was finishing up my master's degree. As David, as you know, I was uh, working at the Office of the Historian. I thought I was going to get my PhD and specialize in congressional history and after that election, I decided I couldn't uh, study Congress. I needed to actually get involved. And I read about Mikey and decided that's who I wanted to work for. Um, New Jersey at that point had only had six women ever uh, serving Congress. Bonnie Watson Coleman was number six. Read about Mikey and wanted to come home to New Jersey. I'm from Westfield and uh, decided I was going to find any way to get involved and read about Molly and uh uh, you know, ingratiated myself into Molly's life uh, over a, a meeting at a diner. And she, I, don't, I guess I didn't scare her that much. And that was, Molly has been an incredible mentor to me, um, really taught me the ropes. And we worked in, with a lot of women on that race for an incredible woman candidate. And I never looked back from there. And that was a that was a flip of a seat that the Republicans had had for 34 years. So, so, and I'm speaking with Molly Bonato and Jackie Burns. They ran Phil Murphy's campaign for governor this year. Molly, it it seems to me, and, and we've all talked about this before, but there there's a shortage of women running campaigns at the at the very top level as campaign manager, and that that sort of that that's commensurate with with the uh, uh, the gender gap among men who serve in public office. Why is that? You know, actually, I was thinking a lot about, you know, this question, and and I think it's it's really, I think it just depends on the individuals who get involved and and why. And I think, you know, how I, you know, I think in terms of my own trajectory, I was reflecting on on stability and thinking through like how did I make this work for really almost what over thirteen years now. And so I tried to think of all those, those reasons, but it's just like any other untraditional high demand job. I think people think a lot about like why they would do this and what it would mean and, and balancing priorities. And I'm actually really reminded of the article that General Mally Dillon, who was President Biden's campaign manager, um, was a part of. I think it was I think it was in Vogue. Jackie can remind me. But she talked about having two young kids and running the most important race in the entire country and just these difficulties. And so, I, you know, I can't I can only speak to my own, you know, experience. But I do think it is getting better because 
the opportunity that I had to do this basically comes on the shoulders of a lot of women who came before me. And so I think it is, um, the culture is changing. I think it's getting better. I think it's getting easier. I think more women and, you know, our campaign itself, which I think is something to tout with 61% women, um, Governor Murphy's campaign, that is. And I think it's, you're only going to see more women do this in the future because there's so many more women who are examples and who can be held up to see like, you can have this path. Like this is possible. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, I'm not sure I totally understood how to get here, but I've, there's been so many incredible women before me in New Jersey and elsewhere that I think show that what the art of the possible is for women in this role. And how, how should women who are, who are listening to, to this radio show, who younger women who want to be involved in politics, whether they're Democrats or Republicans or liberal or conservative, how, did they, how, how, did, how should they go about getting involved in political campaigns? Well, I think <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and I'm giving it to Jackie. But I think, to be fair, I got involved by volunteering. My first campaign was the Barack Obama presidential campaign in 08. And I actually started as a field volunteer in the Potomac primaries in, um, in Maryland, outside of Annapolis. It was close to where I had graduated from college. And, you know, I, I still have to show up. And that is one thing, you know, since 2013, which was my first race with John Zimmer, with Mikey in 2018, even with the governor, women have been leading the change in New Jersey from start to finish, as long, at least through my experience. And I just think women have to, one, show up, and I would say to get involved, start to volunteer or apply for jobs, ask. And which, I mean, actually, Jackie's story about how to ask for a job is exactly what you have to do if you want to do this, because I think there are plenty of opportunities. And she made a joke about, you know, meeting me in a diner, but she was persistent. She had folks call me. She emailed me. She showed up to a volunteer meeting. She said, we have to have lunch. Like, let me tell you why I, why I can help you, why I can help Mikey Cheryl and why I want to be a part of this. And she came with a social media plan and said, here's your Instagram following. And here's what I think you could be doing better. And she over a Greek salad showed me, you know, some deficiencies, I I think in the early campaign that, you know, I knew about, and it was interesting for someone who wasn't on the inside. Um, And I think that is my advice is show up and show value volunteer. And, you know, Jackie, I don't know if you have other things you want to add. Go ahead, Jackie. I want to I want to hear your suggestions on how how women can get more involved in political campaigns. Yeah, so I think you know I think Molly's right. I think that there's an incredible amount of talent on both sides of the aisle. I think we saw that in Absolutely. our campaign. The 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 women uh, who were staffers on our campaign are diverse and powerful and smart. And I think what Molly said about uh, I think women sometimes wait to be asked to do things. So my own advice and what I did for myself was I didn't wait to be asked. I just kind of went in and said, this is what I think you need to be doing. And here's how I can, I, I think I can be helpful. And it, you don't need to be brash to do it, but coming in with a plan and showing your value and your ideas, I think that there are some, there's incredible talent and creative people out there who maybe don't have, uh, you know, experience in it, but you have life experiences that will maybe make you think differently and bring a different perspective. And that is valuable to any organization. And I think that's something that, you know, was really prized through the governor's leadership mm-hmm. and through the first lady that really, you know, 
focused on that and bringing those voices in. So that's, I think that's my, never be afraid to invite somebody to a diner. (laughs) And and Jackie, it's, it's not just, it's, it's not just people who step up and run for office. It's, it's all of that support system from, from the top of the campaign, right down to the volunteers, isn't it? That's 100% right. And having that culture, I think Molly really built that culture, an open dialogue, open communication. And, you know, starting with the governor and the first lady, the lieutenant governor, all the way down, we really focused on that and, you know, making sure that people could be heard and we can build those structures. Um, And I think you see that with all the great things our junior staff is going on to do. It's really it's really impressive and exciting. I think there's a really uh, talented crop of young operatives coming up in New Jersey, and it's exciting to watch. And, and I want to go off off page for a second, Molly. I mean, it, it not you know one of one of the highest ranking men in your campaign was Jarrell Harvey, uh, and he is now the communications director for Kathy Hochul's campaign for governor of New York. Uh, that, that's 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 got to be an advantage for Governor Hochul. Jarrell's incredible, so I absolutely think he is uh, an advantage for uh, Governor Hochul. And, you know, same with uh, Miguel Arola, who was our research director. They both went on uh, across the river, and they're, they're incredible minds and incredible um, young, talented uh, men of color who are, are going to do incredible work for the governor, and I'm excited for them. So what do you do about, I mean, clearly there is a shortage of women as party leaders, as county chairs. Uh, what can women do to, uh, to to take control of political parties in New Jersey, Democrats and Republicans? I think Molly, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think there's been a real growth uh, in that in that area. I think a lot of the, you know, I think of Arlene um Clintus Perez in Hunterdon County, you know, the grassroots movements that she has been building and she's a county chair. I think of the work Peg Schaefer has been doing as vice chair of the party. Um, Janice Mirnov, um, who balances Mercer County, is interested, I think, incredibly well between grassroots and establishment. Um, you know, and, you know, I think Amy DeGeese, I, I do think there, you know, I can't speak for the Republicans, so I won't, but I, I do think there is a change in New Jersey politics at that level and more women are getting involved. Dalia Valenda, who's the executive director of the state party, came from the grassroots, you, you know, before Congressman Freelingheisen. She was working in a bank before Rodney Freelingheisen tried to get her fired, right? Correct. I, you know, I was just about to tell that story. I, I, I think there are so many women, and these are just a handful, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think about the women who we've had the privilege of working with, you know, Marcia Marley um, comes to mind, who taught me an immeasurable amount between 2018 and even in 2021, who's been a credible grassroots leader on policy and organizing, you know, I, Hedy Rosenstein, who right. was on the campaign with us. Cannot forget Hedy. You cannot forget no, Hedy. And, God, and absolutely not, never. This, this time runs very, very quickly. I'll have to, I want to have you both back soon. But Molly Bonato, Jackie uh, Burns, uh, key figures as the leaders of Phil Murphy's reelection campaign, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, David. Thank you. And, and everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, this is David Wildson. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe, and you have been listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.